With that, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you would be glorified through the reading and the study of your word. I pray that our time together in the moments to come would glorify you, our tentedness, our open hearts, would worship you. We submit to your sovereignty today. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world, fellow Christians who are suffering for their faith in Christ. And whatever prison they're in, whatever persecution they're facing, whatever trials uh, that they find themselves in, for those who are being tried and being executed and tortured and imprisoned, we pray for them. May your hand be upon them. We know they are loved by you. May they be filled with your spirit today and given the strength that they need to persevere and to overcome. For our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, we lift them up to you as well as the Ukrainian people. We pray your hand of protection upon them. And we pray that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles, what's the best advice that you could give your kids and your grandchildren this week? What advice do you commonly give your kids and your grandchildren? Grandparents, what advice do you give them? Parents, what advice do you, what are some important words of advice you give your kids? That, that's not rhetorical. You, you can answer. I, I tell my kids that no matter what, God loves them. All right, no matter what, God loves them. All right, whatever they do, God will always be there for them. That's very good. Yes, uh, Ernesto. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's good advice for your kids. Know you, who you are. Know what? Oh, know whose you are. I thought you said no booze. Uh, <laughs> good advice too, but know whose you are. That's right. Okay, very good. Yes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. Amen. Anybody else? Do what? Stay in school. That's good. Words of advice you give your kids or your grandkids. Anyone else? All right. Let God lead your path and your footsteps. Very good. Yes. That's right. Christ did not die on the cross just to give up on us. Very good. Yes. Talk to God when you're at school and if you're having a hard time, ask him to come. 
All right, talk to God when you're having a hard time and ask him to help you. Yeah, we're going to see some of these things in the lesson this morning. All right, here are a few, uh, a few words of advice that I found, and I'll finish with one that I uh, came up with for my children. Some were, be a good role model. Make communication a priority. Be flexible. Eat dinner together. Say your prayers. Be forgiving. Find the right priorities. Learn patience. Listen more and talk less. And then mine, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> do we not give our kids all kinds of advice, whether good or bad? Well, in 1 Timothy, Paul is sharing his heart and his advice to Timothy, who is a young pastor serving at Ephesus. Paul knew Ephesus well. He knew the Ephesian people as well. He led most of them to Christ. And he knows young Timothy well. And so he is giving advice to his dear friend, young Timothy. If you look at the passage for today, I want you to notice just a couple of things. He says, first, Timothy, my son. Now, Timothy is not his biological son. However, there are a couple of reasons Paul would have referred to him as his son. First of all, there is a significant difference in age. There's no question. Timothy is barely more than a teenager. He's a young man. And uh, Paul is not a young man. He's at least my age, if not older. And so because he's old enough to be his father, he has taken upon himself a fatherly role for young Timothy. But spiritually, obviously, there is a huge difference in maturity as well. Paul's just been a, a believer in Christ for a lot longer than young Timothy has. And so there is a maturity difference spiritually. And because of this chronological difference and this spiritual difference and this desire on Paul's part to, to, to personally connect with Timothy, he calls him son. Timothy, my son, a term of endearment. And then he says, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and good conscience some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. I want you to notice one thing before we get into the passage. He says, in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Did you catch that? We think about the prophecies of the Old Testament that, that were prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ. But here, Paul is talking to Timothy. And he's not talking about Old Testament prophecies, but there apparently was someone and, or some believers in the, one or some of the churches there in the first century who know about Timothy, who have helped to commission Timothy, and they've received a word from God that there are prophecies in the word of prophesying. They say, God is going to do great things through Timothy. We don't know exactly what the prophecies were about Timothy, but, but they're great prophecies. And Paul is saying here, Timothy, don't forget, people have prophesied about you. Now, a prophecy doesn't come from you or from me. A true prophecy comes from God. And so God used people to prophesy, but God is giving this message to, to, to Timothy through people. He's saying, Timothy, I have a purpose for your life. And Paul is reminding them, uh, him of those prophecies by say, in, in saying, Timothy, I don't want you to feel that you're alone. Don't forget you're not alone. Don't forget you're not just making this up as you go. You're not just winging it. 
hoping that God is watching or maybe is or maybe is not. Maybe it'll work out or maybe it won't. Paul says, no, 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 no. Remember the prophecies about you. And to that extent, I can tell you through God's word, God has a purpose for your life. And he has specific places and times and people that he wants you to meet. You are not winging it. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not on your own. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up because God has a path for you and he wants to keep you on the path. He wants to encourage you on that path and he wants you to find victory at the end of that path. So he says that to Timothy. Now we haven't got started yet, but I want you to know that before we look into the passage. As we look into the passage further though this morning, I want you to know that Satan is not on vacation. He isn't taking a break. He didn't go to spring break this week. He hasn't become distracted or disinterested in you. He hasn't become a good guy and he has not forgotten about you and me. He is at war with us every single day. Satan is out to destroy your faith, discourage your walk in Christ, and ruin your relationships. Right now, I assure you, he is actively working in our life to end us through anger, ego, hatred, impatience, lust, lies, bitterness, insecurities, addictions, an unforgiving heart, and any other weakness that we may have that he can exploit, he'll do it. Satan hates you. He hates you. He despises you. You and your faith are despicable to him. Nothing will make him happier today than to see you miserable, discouraged, hurting, and defeated. His goal today is to trip you up, to catch you off guard, and to let you have it. Fortunately, through Christ, God is for us and Satan cannot stand against us. But for that daily victory to happen, Paul tells us in this passage today to Timothy and to you and I, there are a few important things that we need to keep in mind. But he also tells us what happens when we don't do these things. He says, ultimately, we can shipwreck our faith. That's a term that he used. We can shipwreck our faith. So today's message is entitled, Avoiding a Shipwrecked Faith. Avoiding a Shipwrecked Faith. We find out, and I don't, I'm not going to read this to you, but in 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul mentions that he was shipwrecked not once but tw or twice, but three times in his life. He, he had survived three shipwrecks, which may be a record. It is literally miraculous that Paul survived three shipwrecks. So when Paul talks about being shipwrecked, he knows exactly what he's saying. So what will prevent us from shipwrecking our faith? First, Paul says to fight the good fight. Very simply, if you look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, back in our passage for today, he tells us to fight the good fight. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. 
Now, we use that term a lot in this world. We see it in, in this world, but it's actually a term that Paul used, and it's not the only time that he used it. He repeats this directive again to young Timothy in chapter 6, in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says in 1 Timothy 6.12, is it there? 1 Timothy 6.12, there we go. He says to young Timothy, fight the good fight. Of the faith, take hold of the eternal life for which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so, at least twice, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. There are many fights, there is only one good fight. Now, there's confusion because generally people think that the good fight is the fight that they're fighting, whatever fight they're fighting. If they're fighting for gay rights or they're fighting for uh, uh, abortion or they're fighting for this cause or for that cause or for this country or for that country, whatever the fight is, it is our nature. We think that the good fight is our fight. The bad fight is whoever's fighting against us. Is that not how we frame it? That's not what he's talking about here. <laughs> the, the good fight isn't even our fight. It is the fight against the powers of darkness in this world between God and evil, between God and Satan. And so he says, Timothy, you're part of this fight. And Paul is reminding him, fight the good fight. Be sure if you're going to fight in life that you fight the right fight. Did you know that every year around our world, the global military expenditure is now running nearly $2 trillion dollars? That is the, the amount of money that the United States spends and all the other countries in, around the world were guesstimating or estimating, uh, at least the article that I read, that they're spending about $2 trillion a year. And that $2 trillion combined for all the countries in the world that have militaries, they spend it on military preparedness, equipment, troops, training, weapons, and technology, $2 trillion a year. Comparatively, the annual cost, listen to this, the annual cost to feed all the hungry people in the world, you ever wonder what it costs to feed the world? The annual cost to feed all of the hungry people in the world is about $45 billion per year, as opposed to $2 trillion for military use. In other words, we could feed the world for 44 years on what is spent in military spending in one year. We could feed the world for 44 years. For that kind of money, we could end world hunger. We could end homelessness and, and treat and even find cures for most diseases on earth. Is that not extraordinary? In hunger, homelessness, and disease, instead we spend it all on military preparedness so that we can fight the fight. Unfortunately, some nations in the world rally for the wrong fights. You see that in the news every week. This week, Vladimir Putin held a big rally. Did you see that on the news? It was quite a show. It looked like the Super Bowl. He was in this big stadium. It was all a sham, of course. It was all rigged. But he had this big rally to muster support for his invasion of the Ukraine. That's the wrong fight. 
They aren't alone. Paul had to deal with those who were fighting the wrong fight too 2,000 years ago. Look in verse 19. He says this. He says, holding on to the faith, uh, to faith and a good conscience. And then he says this. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Listen to me. If Satan can get you to fight the wrong fight, he will shipwreck your faith. You have to ask the question, who's he talking about? He says the word some. Now, there are times when Paul is speaking generally. You know, some people, not, not talking about any particular, just, just some people, just speaking figuratively some. As you and I often use that word some to talk about some people, you know. We don't really say who or know who. Well, that's not the case here. <laughs> in fact, in the very next verse, Paul names them by name. And he doesn't often do that, but this time he does. Uh, bless their hearts. Um, their claim to fame for all of infinity is, is now burned into the word of God. These guys who had no idea that 2,000 years later, preachers all over the world would be mentioning them as people with shipwrecked faith. Here's what 1 Timothy 1.20 says, the next verse. He says, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So not only are their names mentioned, but Paul says this, and I find this extraordinary. He says, I have handed them over to Satan. Wow, can we do that? <laughs> can we hand people over to Satan? Because I got a list. <laughs> There's several people I can think of right off the top of my head. One of them leads Russia. I'd like to just hand them right over to Satan. Now, it might be important to note that when Paul says this, that he's not talking about his critics, people that he doesn't get along with and doesn't get along with him, although there were certainly people like that, and he certainly had many prayers concerning them. This is a different list of people. These are people, he says, that he hands them over to Satan to be taught not to what? Blaspheme. So they're not blaspheming the Apostle Paul. Who are they blaspheming? God. And so it brings up the question, what is a blasphemer? Well, here's Webster's Dictionary definition for you. To blaspheme means to speak in a way that shows irreverence for God or, or something sacred or to utter blasphemy, or to use offensive words or make statements that show no respect for God. Now, we live in a blasphemous world. There's no question. But Paul apparently has been dealing with people, and it may be heretics that have come through the church, that through their heresy have been literally blaspheming God. Or they came to visit church for a while, and they ended up in a different religion, and they chose to blaspheme God. Or it may be people that were Jewish and they became uh, haters of the church at the, uh, of the time and they were blaspheming Christ. And so whatever happened, they were blaspheming God. And Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So these guys were not fighting the good fight. They were fighting the other kind of fight. So I think Paul was saying, you want to act like you're on the right, uh, on the other team? Fine, I'll let you go over to the bad side, to the side that Satan is on, and I'll let you fight with them for a while, and we'll see how that works out for you. 
Now, how did it work out for them? The same way it works out for everybody who fights on the side of Satan, it works out badly. Works out badly. Read a New York Times article. Read a New York Times article. A group of women about a group of women in several different countries who left different countries who left the ISIS carriers in Syria. Several Syria. Several years ago, having the with ISIS having the uprising in uprising back in Syria, Iraq and Syria. Do you remember that? Seems like so long ago. Seems like so long before the pandemic. It was before the pandemic. And ISIS was horrible as ISIS was committed to civil murders. The terrible thing that we're doing to people. Terrible thing that we're doing to people. people in there are people countries in that are country that were that are that were sympathetic, and some of them were young and some of them were young actually did and went over there and take members and members members of ISIS. So here's an article about one of them. Her name is about one of them. Forgive me if I mispronounced it. Forgive me if I mispronounced it. She was a U.S. citizen. 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 She was a This year, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to allow her back into the U.S. You see, Satan always convinces us the grass is greener on the other side. It's always a lie. There's no grass at all. So she thought the United States was such an awful place <clears throat> that we were terrible. In fact, the United States was the enemy. We were the unrighteous, and the ISIS terrorists were the righteous ones. So convinced that she went there to have a better life. And then when she was in that country, she found out very quickly how great she had it here. How spoiled that she was. How she took for granted her freedoms here and her opportunities here. She learned how horrible it is out in the real world, what a dark place it is. She didn't have to be a theologian or a philosopher to realize she'd messed up and she wanted to come back. Of course, there are consequences when you shipwreck your life on a national level like this. She was not allowed to come back. I want you to be reminded today that we are in a war with Satan. Sometimes we fight bravely. Sometimes we slip. Sometimes we fall. In a moment's notice, we allow 
the enemy to get to us. But some who call themselves believers aren't doing any of that. They're not on the battlefield at all. In fact, they've completely gone AWOL. Absent without leave, they have deserted their post and Satan is there waiting for them to drift away to shipwreck their faith. I love our church. I see God moving here. I see wonderful things happening. I see growth. I see life. I see ministry and missions taking place. I see evangelism. I see passion in worship. And I love to see that. I see fellow believers living out their faith and their salvation and their victory that they have in Christ. But even here, like almost all churches, I could fill this sanctuary up two times over with those who were once fighting the fight, the good fight, who have long since departed. They're gone. They're still living in the area. Now, I know many people move out of the area or sometimes God calls people from one congregation to another congregation in his sovereignty. He does do that. And for those who genuinely under conviction leave here and go somewhere else or people who leave somewhere else and go here, God bless them. If that's what God desires from you and through you, then you should do that. These are not the people that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ones who stopped fighting the good fight. They don't go anywhere. They haven't been to church in years. Maybe that occasional Christmas or Easter, but that's just it. They have no ministry, do no mission work, give nothing, support nothing. They have no discipleship taking place in their life. They have no uh, prayer life to speak of. Satan has cut in on them, and they've lost the joy of their salvation if they were ever saved. Paul witnessed the very same thing in the Galatian church. He had a lot of trouble with the Galatians. <clears throat> in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, he says this to the Galatian church. He says, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Now listen to what he says. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Who's the one that calls them? Yeah, God or Christ. Paul says, who cut in on you? I can tell you who didn't cut in on you. It wasn't Jesus Christ. It must be the other guy. <laughs> That's what he's implying here. He said, you were, you were doing good, but you let them cut in front of you. And I've seen wonderful people, and you probably have too in your life and in your faith, who let Satan cut in on them. And they lost their joy and just drifted away. They stopped fighting the fight. You may be one of those. And you think back in your own life, in your own testimony, how God has now restored you. But there may be a time where God allowed you to see what a dark place this world was and how much you needed him. So he's making that appeal to young Timothy, which brings us to Paul's next plea. To Timothy and to you and I, he says, hold on to your faith. First Timothy 1 chapter 1 verse 18, if you look there in verse 18, he says, fight the good fight, holding on to faith. Hold on. The word hold on is the word that literally means cling to your faith. The Greeks had a race in their Olympic games that was unique. 
The prize didn't so much go to the one who finished first. Now, most races are the first one to the finish line wins. But this particular race that they had wasn't the first one to get to the finish line. It was the first one to get to the finish line with his torch still lit. Because all the runners would hold a torch while they were running. And if while they were running, their torch was extinguished, they lost the race immediately. They were disqualified. Only the one who finished the course, who got past the finish line, and his torch was still lit, only then could he win the race. So Paul is saying to Timothy, like that runner who's clinging to that torch, he says, Timothy, cling to your faith. Hold on. To the end. To the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, test everything. Hold on to the good. Jesus himself, in one of the letters he wrote in Revelation to one of the seven churches, he says, only hold on to what you have until I come. Sometimes the holding on in the midst of battle is the most difficult thing that you can do. And he says to Timothy and I, hold on. Because holding on is not always easy. Sometimes it seems nearly impossible, but it is not. Once upon a time, there were two frogs that fell in a well. Maybe you've heard this parable. The frogs were in the well for a long time and desperate to get out. There was water down in the bottom, but it was way down there and they couldn't get out of the well. They were stuck. And so the two frogs, realizing their peril, uh, began to yell out and call for help. And all the other frogs in the forest nearby could hear their cries for help. And so they came hopping over to the well and surrounded the well. And they're all looking down on these two frogs stuck in the well. They gave them strategies and ideas, jump here and do this and do that. Nothing worked. They talked about go, trying to go down. They couldn't go down to get them. And at the end, all of the frogs that were around the well at the top of the well looking down realized the situation was hopeless. And so they just simply said to the frogs, they began to yell down to them, give up, quit, stop trying. Go ahead and just die now so you won't, you won't have to endure a long, painful death because you're not getting out of that well. Well, one of the frogs listened very intently to their advice, and he gave up. He lost hope, and before you know it, he was dead. The other frog <clears throat> was hard of hearing, and he didn't know what they were telling him. He just noticed that they were yelling at him, and he thought they were trying to encourage him. He thought they were telling him to hop out of there. And so the more he would try, the louder they would yell to give up. And again, he would get more encouraged that they're yelling, urging him on, he thought. And he kept jumping and kept jumping. And finally, he jumped out of the well <laughs> because he was hard of hearing. He didn't give up. Paul is saying to Timothy and to you and I, it may look dire sometimes. Don't give up. That relationship, parents and grandparents that you have with your children, your grown children or your grandchildren, that may be fractured and splintered and broken, I would say keep praying. Don't give up on them. For your marriage, don't give up. Satan is telling you today, give up, quit. It's just too hard. God would be there to say, don't give up, give up. You cling to your faith that God will restore you and God will bless you. Don't give up. And maybe 
because of all these difficulties in your life or because of a bad report that you got from the doctor, you're tempted to give up on life itself. And God would say to you today, he loves you. He, he cares about what you're going through and he offers hope for you. Don't give up. Cling to your faith. And then lastly, Paul tells us to keep a good conscience. To keep a good conscience. Back in our passage for today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, fight the good fight. That's the first thing. Hold on to the faith. Holding on to the faith. That's the second thing. And number three, he says, and a good conscience. Hold on to your faith and to a good conscience. Now that, I honestly will tell you, I passed by that very quickly in my study of this passage. I went over and over and, and I caught that. It sounds like a platitude, but he doesn't mean it as a platitude at all. Or he wasn't just writing this thinking, well, I need a third thing, <laughs> you know, because preachers are going to need a three-point sermon. And so I'll just write this third thing down real quick. He has a purpose in saying a good conscience. What is a good conscience? The magazine editor H.L. Uh, Mencken defined conscience as, quote, the inner voice which warns us that somebody may be looking. <laughs> But a man with a good conscience will do the will of God in spite of who is watching or what people might say or when no one's watching. Christians who make shipwrecks of their faith do so by sinning against their own conscience. How's your conscience today? Do you feel guilty of something you've done? A secret sin, a relationship that's bad and it's your fault. How is your conscience this morning? What would you be willing to do for a clear conscience? Some people take it to their grave. They never confess it. They never work through it. They keep that secret, that, those secret sins and those struggles, they keep it always a secret. But still others, to clear their conscience, sometimes confess their sins. And even, especially, they confess their sins on their deathbeds. So I looked this up. I was astonished. Some of the things I can't even tell you <laughs> that people confessed on their deathbed. But here are a few testimonies that people wrote in to various websites. And they shared about either a confession they made or a loved one made on their deathbed that shocked everyone. <clears throat> the first guy said this, my dad told me that when his grandfather was about to die, he finally told his family why he had this tattoo on his arm. Now I know some of you have tattoos and most people know why you have a tattoo. You tell everybody this tattoo stands for this or stands for that or I got this tattoo when I was here or there or maybe you were in the Navy and you had too much to drink or whatever your tattoo. Maybe it has some profound meaning or you, you honestly don't even remember getting it because you were so drunk and you don't know why you picked that particular tattoo. Big mystery to you. Well, this guy had a tattoo on his arm and nobody knew why. He said, 
He said it, it was always a mystery because he was a pastor at a church and he never spoke of it, a fellow pastor. Apparently, when he was 19, he confessed this on his deathbed, he was a safecracker and robbed a bank and then got caught and arrested. So he got the tattoo while he was in prison. But when he got out, he decided to never tell anyone and he turned his life around. Another person said, my dad grew up thinking his mom committed suicide when he was 10. Speaking of her dad, and so this was her grandmother, said, my, my dad grew up thinking his mom committed suicide when he was 10. When my grandfather passed away about a decade ago, he confessed to my dad on his deathbed that he'd actually killed my grandmother. Oh, that's way worse than a tattoo. Somebody else said, a great aunt of mine says that when her husband was on his deathbed, he confessed that he had actually shrunk two of her very favorite and expensive sweaters by drying them in a dryer many years earlier. And then he quietly disposed of them. For years, she had hoped they might turn up. She said she even suspected one of her friends may have stolen them. But nope, he was just afraid to admit that he had ruined them. So he confessed it on his deathbed. She forgave him, and they had a laugh about it right near the end, the writer says. Another person wrote in and said, My grandmother on her deathbed told all the kids, me and my grown cousins, that she had a tattoo. I'm not making this up. That she had a tattoo, another tattoo story, on her deathbed that she had a tattoo of the state of Texas tattooed on her rear end. The nurse in the room burst out laughing and confirmed that it was true. <laughs> Another person said, my mom had a patient who was terminal and confessed to killing his twin brother in Vietnam so that he could blame the death on the war, steal his identity, then return to the U.S. to be with his brother's wife. Oh my goodness. That's bad. Yeah. That's what we do when we have a guilty conscience. How is your conscience? I hope you haven't killed your twin brother, surely. How is your conscience today? Acts chapter 24, verse 16 says this, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I want you to know Satan wants to get to you today. And in order to do that, he needs for you to have a conscience that is not clear. He needs you weighted down. He needs you burdened with a guilty conscience. And it may be something that you did on the way to church this morning, or it may be something you did 30 years ago. Now, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> I don't want to know, I don't think. But I do encourage you to tell God this morning, because God doesn't want you walking through life like that. Confess it to him. Walk out of here with a clear, clean conscience. What would you do for a clear conscience? What secrets are you hiding? I have good news. You don't have to wait till your deathbed. Let God forgive you today in Christ. Right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says, we confess to God, it is he alone that can forgive us, cleanse us, and clear our conscience. 
There was an old prospector that was sleeping in his tent one night, and he had a dog tied up right there just outside the tent. His dog began to bark, and it woke him up, and it made him mad, so he yelled at the dog to be quiet. And the dog got quiet for a minute or two, but then he started barking again, so the prospector got mad, and he cussed out the dog, and the dog got quiet for a minute or two. The prospector went back to sleep, and the dog woke him up again, barking even louder. And so finally, the prospector kicked the dog as hard as he could to shut him up. Went back to sleep. The dog started barking again, and finally he kicked the dog to death, killed it to shut him up. And then he went back to sleep, only to be murdered by the very intruders the dog was trying to warn him about. Many Christians have kicked their consciences to death, and now they're headed headlong for disaster with a shipwrecked faith. But God does not want that for you. Today, he would say, fight the good fight. Hold on. Grasp on to your faith until the very end. Come to God and let him give you a clean conscience as we move forward in the kingdom for God's glory. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today. Well, thanks for joining us today online. Things for in our life and in our hearts. We don't want anybody to know, including you. So we don't deal with it. We just hide it. We pretend that Satan knows and he uses it, it to get against us. He's always reminding us of that terrible thing that we said, the deed that we did, that habit, that addiction, that personality defect. And he's trying to shipwreck our life. Father, we ask and pray in the name of Jesus right here, right now, that that not happen. We ask and pray for your forgiveness in our life. We ask and pray for your mercy in our life. And we are reminded of what you offer in your kingdom. That the grass isn't greener on the dark side of this world. It's all a lie. That there is nothing waiting for us apart from you but misery hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, and death. But in you, our life can have meaning and purpose and joy only in you. Your word tells us that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And maybe there's somebody here this morning or somebody watching online who needs to confess Christ as their Lord. They need to surrender to Him right now and to His Lordship. That means He calls the shots from now on. He's their Lord. And they make that confession of faith to you that they believe in faith that He died on the cross for their sins and in three days came back to life. Even though we weren't there, we take that step of faith. That you love us that much. And you take our sins seriously. But it also gives us this great assurance, this promise, that our sins can be forgiven. We don't have to take it to the grave with us. We don't have to wait to our deathbed. We can release it to you right here, right now. And your word says you will separate our sins as far as the east is from the west, and you will remember them no more. They're gone. 
Oh, Father, may we release that to you today. 